Our text this morning will span parts of two chapters. You've heard me say before that the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible are not inspired. And this morning is a good example of that because our text covers the second half of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. It will begin in 2 Samuel 18 at verse 19. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 18 beginning at verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king, that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. <clears throat> and when he lifted his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. And went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, 
Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would minister to us from your word. For your word is holy and true. For your word is life to us, O Lord. Help us to be filled with your spirit. To hear from you in your word and be changed. And to live a life that honors and pleases you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Life is often a mixture of good and bad. Pleasure and pain. We would like it to be simpler. To have the Lord resolve all of our problems in our favor. To wrap everything up neatly, like a movie, where every question is answered and every thread untangled at the end. But the truth is that life is more like this text we read this morning. Relief mixed with sadness. Hope mixed with regret. And here we see the lasting effect on David of his sin. And this points us to a hope. The hope of heaven. And so we pick up here in our text where we left off two weeks ago. When we left Israel, David's forces had secured a great victory. Absalom's rebellion had been defeated. And there was no doubt that David was the victor. 
The narrator tells us that 20,000 men of Absalom's forces perished. And now there is no Absalom to carry on the cause of rebellion. Joab had seen to that. But David doesn't know any of this. He's back at Mahanim waiting, waiting for news of the battle. And Ahimaaz is eager to bring him the news. You may remember that he had previously been the one to warn David to flee over the Jordan quickly. He was one of David's spies from that network within, uh, within Absalom's court. Hushai had sent word through the network to David that Ahithophel had advised an immediate attack upon David before he could rest, before he could reach safety, to kill David and to win the throne forever. And so Ahimaaz had a vested interest in the outcome. If David had been defeated, he would have likely been executed as a rebel. And so now he wanted to enjoy the victory. And so he gets right up in Joab's face, volunteering to run to David. You can just picture this. Perhaps you've seen this even happen in your home. A situation where perhaps dad is off at work and something exciting happens at home. News comes to the house. And as dad pulls in the driveway and comes to the door, all the children come and they elbow each other out of the way because they want to be the ones to tell dad the great news of everything that's happened. Sometimes there's even a decision made, who can break the news? But siblings can't keep quiet, and they talk over each other. They're so eager. That's what you need to have in your mind here. But Joab, on the other hand, as we know, is a realist. He knew that Absalom could not live if the rebellion was to be put down, if the kingdom was to be saved. But he also knew what David's likely reaction would be. You remember how odd it was that the only clear instruction that David gave to his army was deal gently with the enemy, with the leader of the rebellion, my son Absalom. And so Joab did what had to be done, but he knew that David would not be happy about it. Now, there's also the matter of the previous times that news has been brought to David. We've seen this earlier in the book. At the opening of the book, there was the Amalekite who came and brought news to David of the death of Saul, thinking that he would be rewarded, telling David news he wanted to hear that Saul was dead. But David was not pleased by that news, and he actually executed the Amalekite. Then there was the time when the murderers of Ishbosheth came to tell David that his rival, the son of Saul, had perished. And again, they thought they were going to be rewarded for it. And they were dealt with in the same way. So Joab does not want to risk Ahimaaz here. He doesn't want the bearer of this bad news to suffer for it. And so Joab assigns the task to a Cushite here in verse 21. We don't know anything about the Cushite except for he's likely a foreigner from a province in Africa. That's where Cush is usually seen to be. 
He was somehow attached to the army. He was not a relative. He was not a priest. He was not in the government. He was a servant. And so this would put some separation between the event of what had happened and the announcement. And Joab is also, I think, counting on the Cushite not giving all of the details of what has happened. Because he's not privy to everything. Joab is counting on the Cushite not rolling up to David and saying, You'll never guess what happened, king. Your general, Joab, killed your son. And then his armor bearers hacked him to pieces. And then they threw him into a pit and threw stones on top of him in an ignoble burial. Joab's counting on those details being lost in the wind, left out. But Ahimaaz is persistent. In verses 22 and 23, he says, Come what may, let me run also after the Cushite. And Joab says, in very typical Joab fashion, Well, there's nothing in it for you. Why are you going to do something when there's nothing in it for you? And the answer is, come what may, I will run. It's almost as if he's daring Joab to stop him. And then I imagine in my mind's eye that when Joab speaks, there's kind of a sigh and a resignation. Run. Go ahead. I can't stop you. Go ahead. But again, Joab is counting on the Cushite getting to David first because this conversation has delayed Ahimaaz's departure. Now, this is our first reminder of the brokenness of this world. On a day of clear victory and rescue, there is still pain and sorrow. I think in my own life, and perhaps in many of yours, of an analogy. When you have children who grow up, and they find a godly spouse, and they get married to the spouse that they love, and they start their own home, and you see them headed off for success, and you are excited for them and happy for them, but they move away. There's joy, but it's mingled with loss, with pain. Because that's the way of the world. We can't have everything. There is sin and brokenness in the world. So Joab relents and he lets Ahimaaz go. But the Cushite leaves first and he takes the direct route through what's called the forest in our text earlier. It's rough land. You have to be careful where you walk or you'll sprain your ankle. There's probably um, trees to go over. There's probably bushes to try to get past. You don't run quickly through here. It's more like slowly hiking. But Ahimaaz knows the area. And so he goes the longer route, but through the plain. You might think of it this way. If I told you, I want you to go to Tomball but I want you to take the surface roads through the city of Houston. And I will get on the Grand Parkway. It's probably twice as long, but I'll get there in half the time. Because the route is much easier. It allows for speed. That's what's happening here. Ahimaaz goes a longer, different route. But he knows he could get there first. Now, David is obviously 
nervously waiting for news. He has a watchman up on the roof, ready to give any reports. We see that in verse 24. And then we see this kind of play-by-play that goes on in verses 25 to 27. There's a man running. Oh, he's running. He must be a messenger. Oh, wait, there's a second man running. Oh, he must be a messenger too. And it has to be good news. And the watchman says, I think the running of the first man is like Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. Now, I have to confess to you. I've attended seminary. I've studied Hebrew and Greek. I've studied the scriptures. I don't know how from a distance you know that a man running looks like a man who runs in a certain way. It just... The only thing that I can think of is that Ahimaaz is the track star of the priests and their families. And so he sees him coming like a bolt out of lightning and he says, no one's as fast as him. He's running like that. That's my only thought. But the watchman's right on the money. And it's interesting because David makes this presumption. He says, Ahimaaz is a good man, therefore he's bringing good news. It's an interesting Kind of play-by-play that happens here. Now, Ahimaaz shows up, and he indeed does have good news. The very first word out of his mouth, before he even bows, is a word that I think you know well, even if you don't know Hebrew. It's translated here in our text, all is well, but the word is shalom. It means peace, wholeness, everything is good. It's the perfect word for this situation. It encapsulates everything in one word. Everything is fine, Ahimaaz says. This was the moment Ahimaaz was waiting for, to be able to announce victory and peace to the king. The rebellion is over. The danger is past, he tells us in verse 28. All those who have had their hand against the Lord the king... Have been, dri- have been delivered up by God. Now the interesting thing is that Ahimaaz doesn't seem to count on David's obvious next question. Remember, the only thing David asked on the way to the battle was deal gently with Absalom. And so is it any surprise to you that the very first question David asks is not how did the battle go, not how were our losses, not are the generals fine, but how is it with Absalom? And I think we have the idea that Ahimaaz wasn't ready for this because I think there's no way around it but to say that he's forced to lie. You almost see the wheels inside his head turning saying, I should have listened to Joab. He knew what was coming here. And so he gives this vague and somewhat deceptive answer. He says, well, I know there was a victory, but I don't have all the specifics. When I left, there was this great commotion. So I'm really not sure. Now, we know he's sure because Joab told him, you're not to bring the news because the king's son is dead. Ahimaaz may not know all the details, but he surely knows Absalom is dead. But to dodge... David's direct question, he lies. He told the truth, but not the whole truth. Do you see the massive difference in that? Young people, 
You can tell things that are true, but unless you tell all the truth, you're lying. That's what he's doing here. And again, we see how hard it is to live in this sinful world. Even victory has pain and sorrow. There is no unmixed blessing. And so we have to be careful how to paint the blessings that we are given. That we don't tell others that our lives are perfect. It is a great temptation for the believer to somehow give a testimony to those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ that everything in their life is perfect now that they've met Jesus, that they've never been healthier, they've never had more money, they've never had a better marriage, they've never had a better job. Everything in their life couldn't possibly be better. The danger there is, is that it's not true. We still face challenges, illnesses, want, need, and when we pretend life is perfect and others see it's not, we give a false testimony. Well, then the Cushite shows up and he gives a similar report in verse 31 to Ahimaaz's report. But again, it is clear what matters to David. What's David's first question again in verse 32? How is Absalom? Tell me. Now, the Cushite, I think, doesn't know the risk of telling the whole truth. In fact, he sees it as a thing to rejoice over. He says, may it be to everyone who goes against the king to be like that man. That's a euphemism for, he's dead, Jim. That's what we know. And in a sense, we need to think like the Cushite. How could the army actually have dealt gently with Absalom, the rebel? How could God's sovereign plan to destroy Absalom coexist with David's plan for his safety? For Christ's kingdom to be established, all opposition must be put down. There is no compromise with evil, with sin. Think about that when you want to deal gently with your sin. Sin must be put to death. And David's response in verse 33 is what we were expecting. There is nothing about his reaction that says there was a victory. We're told that David trembled. The king was deeply moved, our text says. And the word there means to tremble. It's used to describe the way the earth shakes before the Lord's anger. It's used earlier in this book, in chapter 7, verse 10, in the promise that Israel will dwell in the land securely and be disturbed no more. David is physically upset. Everyone who sees him knows exactly what he's thinking. If we were watching David without having known the outcome of the battle, we would think it was a defeat. But there's more. It's not just the initial shock. David has to get up and leave the presence of others. His grief becomes obvious to everyone. Because for the rest of Israel, Absalom was a wicked rebel who got what he deserved. But for David, he was a beloved son. 
David was not thinking about the man who rode out to end his life. No, he's thinking about the boy that followed him around. He's thinking about the young man who got his first ride on a donkey. He saw the one whom he thought would succeed him someday on the throne. And he saw the sinner that he prayed would repent and embrace the Lord. All of that is gone now. Never to be realized. Absalom didn't care about the Lord, but David did. David knew better. There is a finality to death. We always think we have more time until we don't. We are not promised tomorrow. Whether old or young, Absalom thought he was on the top of the world, never concerned about sin. But God was not blind. Don't wait to come to the Lord. You can't afford a delay. There is only one hope for sin, and that is Jesus. But there's something else that drives David's grief as well. We see it in his last statement at the end of verse 33. Would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now David wishes that he had died instead. And this seems supremely foolish and ridiculous. After all, David could have accomplished that simply by surrendering to Absalom at the outset instead of resisting. Absalom would have killed him. David would be dead and Absalom would be alive. And does David really think that the kingdom will be better off with Absalom on the throne? Does he think that God would have allowed that? You see, we know that's not the case because of the promise of chapter 7. So what is driving David here? It seems that David is aware of his own guilt and responsibility. David knew that this sword that had killed his son was put in motion by David's sin. David is responsible. He is the original guilty one. And he has seen pain after pain because of it. First, the child dies. Then Amnon dies. Now Absalom dies. At every turn, David is seeing how his sin brings death. Sin is not something to play with. It's not just some theoretical badness that displeases God. No, it brings death and destruction in its wake. When you are faced with an opportunity to sin, remember that. Your sin will hurt you. It will hurt your family, your children, your church. Remember David's grief before you give in to sin. Pray now that the Holy Spirit would keep you from sin. Well, this is the situation that Joab finds when he arrives in Mahanim. In verse 1 of chapter 19, it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Now think about that for a moment. The returning victorious general 
is not informed about future plans. He's not celebrated for his victory. All he is told is that the king is weeping for Absalom, the enemy. It's so bad that victory is forgotten. It's been turned into mourning. The Hebrew is even starker than the English. In verse 2, so the victory that day was turned into mourning. The word there for victory is also the word for salvation. So the salvation that God has provided has become mourning, sadness, loss. It's as if David has forgotten the danger that he faced. Even worse, he has forgotten that the Lord has delivered him and has kept his promise. But we don't need a word study to get the picture here. Because the people knew what mattered to the king. In verse 3, they stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. There was no celebration, no cheering, no victory parade, no confetti. No. They snuck into the city like a defeated army. Quietly. And avoiding any display. And think about what that must have felt like. These men had risked their lives to flee with David. They had lost their homes. Their families had, been, had to come with them on the run. And then they fought in battle for David. Is David thankful? Grateful? Even concerned about them? He won't even look at them. Or talk to them. All he can do in verse 4 is cover his face and moan for Absalom. Now, we can understand David's pain. But there's also an air of selfishness about it. This may be hard. But when you are going through hard times, do not forget that you are not the only one going through hard times. Now, not to denigrate or downplay the challenges and difficulties you might have in your life and your family's life. But when you remember that others are suffering as well, it helps you to deal with your own grief. You're not the only one living in a sinful world. You're not the only one having trials and tribulations. And so now, there is a real danger of grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory to turn a phrase on its head. Joab sees this in verse 5, and he goes right to David to make his point. And he is typical Joab. To the point. Pragmatic. Concerned about the big picture. This is no delicate speech. Joab doesn't come and go into David's room and stand there quietly waiting for an opportunity to maybe break in, waiting for David to address him and say something that will give him an opportunity. You know, the way many of us think about evangelism. We go and we stand near someone, and if someone gives us kind of a green light that's neon and three feet tall, then maybe we could start to talk about Jesus. But we don't want to interrupt. We don't want to be awkward. Joab doesn't mind being awkward. No. There are sharp words. You have covered with shame the faces of your people, David. You're to blame. There's 
exaggeration. We mean nothing to you. You could care less. Because there's also sarcasm. For I know, in verse 6, for I know if we were all dead, you would be as happy as could be if Absalom was alive. You wish I was dead, David, don't you? And all those people out there. Are you thinking about that? And then there is a call for immediate action. Look at verse 7. Now, Joab is a man's man. But I want you to picture, he's speaking to David the king. Worth 10,000 men, his army said. The man who killed Goliath. The man who defeated foreign tribes. And he looks at him, he says, Now therefore, arise. Get up. Go out. Now, David. Not later. Not an hour from now. Not when your tears are dried. Not when you're in a better emotional state. Not when you're in the proper frame of mind. You need to get out there now and fix things. And he couples that with a stern warning in verse 7. Because if you don't go, then it's going to be worse for you than anything you've ever experienced. Now, that's a pretty stern threat. Worse than the murder of your son. Worse than the death of your son the rebel. Worse than having to flee the kingdom. Worse than having to flee Saul. Worse than facing Goliath. Worse than having to pretend you're crazy among the Philistines. That's pretty bad. And I think Joab's right. Because David's on the cusp of losing the war, not because of a battle, but because of his grief. Well, the result is that David listens to Joab. And it's interesting because... Amongst many figures in the Old Testament, Joab is, I think, one of the hardest to figure out. He's clearly right here. David is disrespecting the men who fought for him. And he knows what's most important right now, the kingdom and its preservation. But Joab is also directly responsible. He's the one who killed Absalom. He's the one that, if we can put it this way, has put us in this position. But David hears Joab through the fog of his grief. And David wipes his tears. And he takes up his post. And I think David has learned something about salvation. Salvation does not come without a cost. Salvation does not wipe away the past. Or the loss that we experience. But salvation does give a future. David cannot save Absalom. Absalom refused to repent and to go to the Lord. But now David can live in light of God's salvation. There is a lesson for us here. Life is full of sorrow and loss. Even for those who believe in Jesus. Maybe especially for those who believe in Jesus. Because they know how wrong sin and misery are. They know the cost. Because they know their Savior paid the price to set things right. David's kingdom was put on the right track by the death of the enemy, Absalom.
but your life can be set right by the death of your Creator, Redeemer, and Friend, Jesus Christ. Jesus does not promise you a life that's perfect with no sorrow, sickness, or need. He never said that. So don't blame Him for a failure to deliver that. He promised never to leave you, nor to forsake you. Even in the midst of the worst of times, in this dark world, there is a true life. It is the light of the Son of God who gave Himself so that you might be delivered from this present darkness. Will you look to Him now? Whether you need to turn to Jesus for the first time this morning or for the thousandth time again. Jesus is your hope. Not politics. Not education. Not money. Not even family. Jesus is your sure and steadfast hope. Trust Him now. Let's pray.